Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about the curious endings and life endings of all kinds of stuff, people, places, things, random things. I'm Sarah. And I'm Emily. And today I'm going to start, I'm going to go, I'm going to talk about Flappy Bird, the game. Oh, cool. (laughs) So some of you may be familiar with this game. Some of you may not. It was a game that at once has been called badly designed and brilliantly designed. It has a lot of lovers and a lot of haters. The game is really simple, and it's pretty much just a side-scrolling game that you have to keep a little bird avatar from crashing into Super Mario-esque, Super Mario-like pipes. So if you're familiar with the, the game Super Mario Brothers, the pipes are green, and they come from the top of the screen and the bottom, and look very similar to Super Mario Brothers pipes. But the game designer um, claims that there's no relation at all. So gravity exists in this game, and the main purpose is to tap the screen screen of your phone to keep the bird in flight so that it won't crash into the pipes, uh, other obstacles, and that could be coming from the bottom or the top of the screen so he doesn't like crash into the ground and die. It is supposedly an incredibly hard game. I've never played it. With people playing for hours, only to have high scores in the low teens or single digits, but the highest score available is 999. I'm not sure if anybody has ever actually done it. Maybe they have, considering all the people saying they were addicted to it. So the game was released in May of 2013, But it didn't really get popular until late 2013 and early 2014 after several reviews came out towards the end of 2013, including one by the infamous game critic PewDiePie. So a lot of people have talked about this game being addictive. So I'm going to first classify addiction, and I'm not going to go too far into it because it would be ridiculous in this format to do so. But... We're going to talk about behavioral addiction first and chemical addiction next. So behavioral addiction would be something like a sexual addiction or a gambling addiction where the behavior itself is the addiction. The the addict is getting something from the the addiction, like the actual physical behavior, as opposed to a chemical addiction, which could be something like alcoholism, an addiction to heroin or opiates, because the user becomes physically dependent on the substance. So they're both different. Um, And someone with a chemical addiction, generally they can't go cold turkey off that addiction because their body becomes dependent on the substance. So... A lot of people have said that Flappy Bird is addictive. So was Flappy Bird addictive? I read a book called Irresistible. It's actually a really interesting book, and it's about the addictive quality of social media and um, games. And Flappy Bird was actually mentioned in it, which kind of piqued my interest. So the addictive quality to Flappy Bird lends itself in the most part according to experts in behavioral addiction, in that the game is very simple, simply made, but very hard 
very frustrating, but gives you intermittent rewards like a slot machine. So you don't know, really know when you're going to be rewarded for your behavior. So it makes your brain kind of go into overdrive, like trying to figure out how to get a reward for this behavior. So an article on theconversation.com by Mark Griffiths, who is the director of international gaming research and a professor of gambling studies, which I had no idea there was a thing, talks about how he personally believes that the only, small, only a small percentage of people are actually addicted to video games. He's, Interesting. He thinks, yeah. He thinks it's actually more of an obsession and an obsession to get the, high, the highest score possible in the game. And if it's a really impossible game, you're going to be playing it a lot. So I have a quote from him, and he says, Behavior that is reinforced sporadically at unpredictable times is more likely to continue than behavior that is rewarded at regular, predictable intervals. It's a technique that is used uh, to great effect in both slot machines and video games because the players are never quite sure if their next move will be the one that triggers a reward. Physiologically, games like Flappy Bird are likely to increase dopamine levels, so you're getting a nice hit of dopamine, when people are going well and noradrenaline when they fail. The interaction of the two competing neurotransmitter systems is likely to keep people engaged for, in the game for periods longer than they originally intended. I oh. found that interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's like a you're getting a dopamine hit, dopamine and noradrenaline hits, and so that's what is keeping you playing the game. Even though you're like, why am I playing this game? I hate this game. So <laughs> <laughs> that's what a lot of people have said about Flappy Bird. So in a tweet dated February eighth, twenty fourteen, the creator of Flappy Bird, Mr. Uh, Dong Nguyen. He's a Korean guy. He said, I am sorry, Flappy Bird users. 22 hours from now, I will take Flappy Bird down. I cannot take this anymore. So he, I think the game was up for about eight months from May 2013 to February 9th of 2014. So it was about eight months. And it had an incredible and strange rise. It was like really rapid success. So a Fast Company article cited that Mr. Nguyen had really unanticipated success and then a really hard time dealing with all the naysayers, critics, and fans all at once. So the, the game kind of went up without much fanfare. He, the, the creator tweeted about it, and then for months later, it really didn't rise all that far. And then all of a sudden... It, it went into the family section of the app store and then slowly rose. Hmm. Yeah, slowly rose. And then people started tweeting about how hard it was and how pissed off they were that they couldn't get very far, but they were still playing it. So on January 10, 2014, it had started gaining 20 reviews a day and rose through the ranks of of the and had risen through the angst of the app store through December. This was partly helped, like I said, by people tweeting that they were excited that they had 
what seemed like ridiculously, ridiculously low scores. Like I got a 10. I'm so excited. And people are like, what? And their love hate relationship or their rage with this game. So it, it gained all this crazy success and people were talking about how they were addicted to it and they couldn't stop playing. And it was, it was um, ruining their lives because they couldn't stop playing it. And whether that was hyperbole on the parts of the addicted fans or really was true is unknown, but it seemed like all that kind of fed off of it. And then the press got involved and everyone went crazy about how this game was addictive. And uh, at one point, the game was supposedly making $50,000 a day in ad revenue because a, the a, a day? day, a day, $50,000 a day on ad revenue because the game was free to download. So he was making ad revenue off the game. And this all became just completely insane. People were talking about how he was faking the reviews initially, how he was buying traffic. And Mr. Nguyen was just like, I don't even know how to do that stuff. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, so it just went insane. And from his tweets into February 2014, it seemed like all the attention and success uh, just was making his life difficult and worse. And people were noticing that he was probably making a ton of money. So this is a maybe a part of it. In one tweet, Mr. One said the game was completely overrated. He's like, this game is overrated. I don't know why you people are freaking out. I can't take this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so by February 9th, 2014... Mr. Nguyen had taken the game off the app stores just like he said he would. Some people thought it was a publicity stunt, but the game never went back on. Never. And Mr. Nguyen said it never would. He was never going to support the game ever again. And he's been true to his word. He hasn't put it back up, even though he was making a ton of money off of it. So there are a lot of copies of Flappy Bird out there. There are a lot of clones after this. But... As I said, he never put it back up. He's still a game developer, and he still generally avoids talking to the press about it. But he's never going to he's never going to put it up ever again. So as of 2017, even if you had the app on your old iPhone, it is no longer supported with the iOS 11 update. So if you want to keep Flappy Birds, you can't update your iPhone. <laughs> wow yeah he's he's not supporting it at all he doesn't want anything to do with it so flappy bird as i said has spawned a ton of clones and this is interesting i was talking to my husband who's a programmer about this and he told me that flappy bird for all its craziness surrounding it actually inspired tons of new game developers because Flappy Bird is simple in itself to program and learn. To, so a lot of people make clones to learn to program games. So there's probably a clone out there if you want to play it. Or you can learn to code your own. Just don't expect the Flappy Bird to come back anytime soon. <laughs> and it's gone. If you have an old iPhone with it on it, it's probably one of the only iPhones with it on it. And supposedly people were trying to sell their old iPhones on eBay with Flappy Bird on it for like 
hundreds of thousands of dollars, but <laughs> <laughs> apparently those sales never went through. So Flappy Bird is a piece of technology game history, and it's not coming back. Except when we talk about it and say, hey, Flappy Bird existed, and it was a weird thing. It's just, it's a game that was so frustratingly crappy and intermittently rewarding that people became obsessed with it. That's that's sort of the moral of the story, right? Exactly. The moral of the story was that the creator had no idea. He was just making a game. He had no idea that it was going to be <laughs> addictive and have this craziness surrounding it and being mentioned in books about social media addiction. Like... <laughs> Wow, I remember people talking about it. It must have been on Facebook, because I think that's the only social media I had. And I remember people talking about it, and then everyone stopped talking about it. And I never understood why, because I never played the game. I didn't have a smartphone. But I remember it. You know, even someone who has, did not have a smartphone did not play phone games. I still don't. I heard about it. And then it was a really frustrating game. <laughs> Everybody basically hated it, but kept playing it. Yeah, I was like, I, why would I play this? I don't want to. Like, it sounds horrible. <laughs> like, I've got good games on my, like, game consoles you can play. That makes me wonder, uh, have you heard about the E.T. video game? Uh, what? No, what was it for? Do you know? I think it was, I forget if it was Nintendo or Sega. Mm -hmm. Let me look it up real quick. And I should do an episode on it. Because it's really interesting, uh, but it was unplayable or borderline unplayable because it was rushed. Mm -hmm. Let's see. It was for, oh, it was for Atari. Uh, but it was borderline unplayable and had almost nothing to do with the movie. It was just sort of rushed to market. But <laughs> it sounds like this game is borderline unplayable. And it wasn't rushed to market. It was just someone who was writing a game for almost like practice. And it's like, here, have people play the game. And so I wonder if the E.T. video game would do well now or not. Uh, you know, you never know if we could put it on like iPhone or Google Play, maybe. Yeah, people might play it. You'd probably have to reskin it for something, something more modern than E.T., I don't know what you could do. Well, I know that there's a game. I think it's called Super Toads or Frog, Super Frogs. I think it's Super Toads. It's something with toads, basically. And it's known as, like, the hardest game that has ever existed. And it's basically just, like, war toads that, like, have to defeat it. Like, ba oh, it's called Battle Toads. And it's an interesting story and I don't really know much about it. So I'm not going to go too far into it because I have no idea what I'm talking about, but I've heard it mentioned as like the hardest game ever played, but it's actually incredibly easy because it was one of the original, I'm going to say Nintendo games, but it, I might be wrong. Yeah. It's just interesting how that stuff comes up and it's, it seems crazy and unplayable, but it has this crazy fan addiction to it. Yeah. And it's it is it's got to just be, for the most part, that intermittent reward, and yes. then the the drive to get to the reward, like you said, the in increase in adrenaline when you don't get it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and it was totally accidental, it seems like, on the on the part of uh, Mr. Nguyen, who is just like, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> when I read some of his tweets and the articles that I was reading, I, I kind of felt bad for him because he's like, he's trying to be helpful, but at the same time, he's like, he's also dealing with a lot of haters who are just like, this game is awful. I'm addicted to it, et cetera, et cetera. And he's just like, he doesn't really know what to do with it because it's just some dude. It's not like part of a huge studio or anything where they have media people to deal with all that stuff. I mean, it's almost like somebody getting, having their class project go viral. Right. Exactly. And then dealing with the fallout from that. And my husband said that people have, like, he thought from, like, stories that he heard at the time that people were threatening his life, too. Oh, I bet they were. People will threaten your life over a ham sandwich right now. (laughs) Stale ham sandwich. Not even a good one. Like, a gas With bees in it. (laughs) I feel for him. That's rough. I feel like when you, I used to have a smartwatch, and this was when I was still on Twitter, like I still had a Twitter account besides like what I occasionally post on our Twitter and it would give me notifications on my wrist for like when I got noted, like for Twitter and email and stuff, Mm -hmm. I had to stop wearing that watch because it was like hardwired into my nervous system and I was getting nuts from it. Like I was just like always on edge, like, Oh my God, (laughs) because it was, constantly buzzing it was so irritating so i understand there there was a um an absolutely fabulous episode about that really where where adina monsoon tries to transform her life and she's given this electronic planner and she's carrying it around and it's telling her what to do and it keeps buzzing or pinging or something and at the end of the episode she throws it out the window and yells give me my life back (laughs) So I don't know that you threw your smartwatch out the window, but I can understand, like, you need your life back. You need to be right. autonomous. Mm-hmm. It was crazy. Mine is somewhat tangentially related in terms of somewhat, in terms of human psychology, but this was very intentional manipulation thereof. So, okay. Where did psychic hotlines go? <gasps> yes. So I was listening to the Purple Stuff podcast, which is a podcast that I very much enjoy. And their most recent episode, they were watching an episode of Friday the 13th, the television show, which apparently ran, ran from 1987 to 1990. And they had a sh- an episode that also had the commercials in it. And these guys do a lot of pop culture discussion, especially about like 80s. Mostly 80s, but some early 90s pop culture and commercials are a big part of that. And they were talking about the commercials and the hotlines that were part of the commercials. And we've all been, not we all, but people of a certain age. So I would guess, let's go millennials and older, have watched infomercials for... Uh, 1-800 numbers or 1-900 numbers where you could talk to a psychic or, and you know, they mentioned one that was numerology based. And I wanted to know where, where did psychic hotlines go? Because between 
people abandoning cable and watching on-demand TV and shopping online and adjusting their media consumption considerably in the past in the past decade and even really even more considerably in the past 5 years where where did these hotlines go so i'm going to briefly talk about sort of how they worked and then talk about some of the bigger hotlines and where they went so let's talk about 1-800 numbers versus 1-900 numbers they're also known as premium numbers a 1-800 number is free for the caller and then if they want to if the person that owns the number or is is leasing the number wants to get paid they would have to get credit card info from the caller and then 1-900 callers each call minute has a flat fee charged to the caller, of which the number leasee, lessee or owner gets a cut, and then the phone company gets a cut. So uh, sort of an example would be $3.99 for the first minute and $0.50 cents for every additional minute. Like that's, that's sort of a phrase that would be familiar to people who have seen the infomercials for these numbers. And these numbers were created initially, especially the 1-900 numbers, to moderate on a local level the number of callers at any given moment. So that switchboards essentially in smaller geographic areas would not get, for lack of a better word, clogged or jammed when a lot of calls went through. And this, these were, they started in the 70s. And they were initially initially used as a, a way to call in and listen to something Jimmy Carter said. It what? was like a yeah, it was like a Jimmy Carter broadcast, and you could call and listen to like an update from Jimmy Carter, the president, President Carter. And then it was used to conduct local news polls. So you could call one nine hundred WXYZ and Channel Seven WXYZ News, and uh, you know say. I think that we should have more taxes. I think we should have less taxes. I think so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. You know, whatever, whatever opinion of the week. And then they could show, not necessarily in real time, but close to real time, what people who called in were responding. And then the people would get charged on their phone bill. Uh, and actually, SNL, Saturday Night Live, did a sketch about lobsters. Eddie Murphy was involved. <laughs> And they made $250,000 during this sketch of people calling in to, like, vote for something. Really? Yeah, and I don't know what they did with that money. <laughs> and I think this is $250,000 in, that would have been very early 80s money. So that was a lot of money. Oh, yeah. And that would probably be about 500,000 people calling in because it was about 50 cents a call. Uh, so it was also used by psychic hotlines. Uh, Hulk Hogan had a wildly successful 1-900 number. You could call <laughs> and hear Hulk Hogan say things. Uh, there were soap opera 1-900 numbers where you could learn about, you know, hear about your your stories if you missed them and and hear about the what happened in the plot and uh, the, hear recordings from the actors and stuff like that. Or you could talk to, like... Jason, Vo or maybe not Jason Voorhees, but like Freddy from Nightmare on Elm Street and all sorts of like Dracula and spooky characters at Halloween, all this stuff. You could, you could listen to people talk 
in the 70s and 80s into the 90s. And it could be interactive, like a psychic hotline, or it could be, or a poll, or it could be a little less interactive. Um, you could hear Hulk Hogan talk. When these started to be used, it was, it, you could advertise to children. Uh, one kid racked up a $17,000 bill. Oh, he's grounded. Well, so that meant California started change. Cal- he was in California, and they changed their laws so that you couldn't advertise for children, and uh, you had to like verify ages and stuff. So regulation has sort of rolled through the years until these are much more much more highly regulated in the uh, Federal Communications Commission (FCC) and the FTC (Federal Trade Commission) are both involved in managing. Uh, sort of, I guess, complaints and stuff about these numbers. So as I said, psychic hotlines are typically, or were typically, 1-900 numbers. So someone would call in and the charge clock would start running, kind of like a meter in a taxi. And they would stay on the line and talk to their psychic and get charged on their phone bill. And then the psychic (laughs) hotlines would get a cut of that. And then, like I said, I was talking about infomercials. Uh, psychic hotlines were particularly popular in the late 80s and in the mid, mid-90s, up through the mid-90s, due to lots of infomercials. The Psychic Friends Network, which uh, featured an infomercial that had Dionne Warwick in it, who is a really talented singer. They are considered some of the most effective infomercials of all time. They ran like 12,000 times a year or something crazy. Oh, yeah. And so just, I mean, I've seen them. And I was a child watching who knows what in the middle of the day. And I've seen a Psychic Friends Network. And the infomercials could be regional or national services. So as psychic hotlines became a phenomenon where you would talk to a psychic through your phone, individual psychics were some of them were able to make more of a name for themselves and they could have their own hotline because the barrier to entry with this was time and being able to afford a premium number and advertising that's it you didn't have to be a psychic uh it's (laughs) a lot of and I'll, i'll talk about what i mean by that soon but uh you know it was not something where you had to there's not there's not a lot a lot of legal barriers to claiming clairvoyance or supernatural ability and charging people access for access to that ability. It's not considered fraud, I guess, or it's sort of considered like a buyer beware. Uh, if yeah. And I'm not trying to say that all people who claim clairvoyance, all people who charge for psychic readings, I'm not saying all of those people are frauds. I'm saying that several of these people have been like, yeah, I was a fraud. So (laughs) I'm not interested in taking on whether or not psychics exist, uh, because I don't think I could come to a conclusion on that that would be accurate or really even a conclusion. But I am saying that there are a lot of people who have come forward after this phenomenon sort of became less of infomercial call a 1-900 number who were like, yeah, I worked from home doing that, and it was all crap. So I'll talk about them. So you don't want to, we don't want to have a tweet, like, later this year, like, we're taking the podcast down. We can't take it anymore. The psychics have come for us. (laughs) (laughs) They should have seen it coming, but they didn't. 
Exactly. I am repeating what people say about themselves. Right. Not what my opinion of them is. <laughs> so the Psychic Friends Network was started in 1991 and was available for phone calls only from 1991 to 1998. It was kind of like a hub that connects a caller to either a random psychic or to a specific one if requested. So people could build up a client psychic relationship. And it was even part of their commercials. There was like some quote about like, I want to talk. I don't want just any psychic. I want to talk to Clarissa. And so people would work typically from their homes, although they, they could work wherever they had access to a consistent access to a phone as a psychic. And the application process seems like it varied but wasn't particularly rigorous. And then the people who were interacting as psychics, whether they were psychic or not, uh, would get paid a cut of... They'd either get paid an hourly rate in terms of the number of hours they were speaking to clients on the phone, Mm -hmm. not the number of hours they were waiting for the phone to ring as they were being, you know, as calls were directed to their homes. Or they were given a cut of the call amount. And... In 1998, the Psychic Friends Network declared bankruptcy, and they had a lot of debts, a lot of billing issues, some manipulative advertising, and then it was also the case that I I get the impression that Psychic Friends Network did not have as many problems as some other psychic hotlines, but I think everybody just got kind of balled up into one sort of realm of understanding, like psychic hotlines are potentially going to cheat you and there was a psychic called mark edwards no relation to john edwards but they were both mentalists who also did seances and mark edwards wrote a tell-all about working for the psychic friends network and how he wasn't a psychic he was just kind of charismatic and chatty and how he was trained to draw calls and how to make people feel like he was clairvoyant and he talked about having color-coded, like if somebody's asking about money, here's here's a set of responses, and the, the money responses on his wall were in green, and if somebody's asking about love, the wall, the responses on his wall that he could just read from it while he was talking on the phone were in pink, and if it was something else, it was in yellow. So it was organized training of the people that worked for them that was not necessarily interested in generating anything but longer phone calls that had higher charges and a lot of people that i read who worked as telephone psychics said that most of the people that they talked to really just needed someone to talk to that's so sad yeah and they also needed someone who would give them a like decide for them so should i should i leave my spouse or not you know a therapist is not necessarily going to tell you yes or no. They're going to say, well, I need you to make that decision on your own, and here's some tools to make that decision. And and a psychic might say, yeah, it's not working out. Kick him to the curb. Or, no, stay in there for the long haul. <laughs> like, they'll just say what they think will make the person calling feel like they are talking to a psychic. So, And maybe they're talking to a psychic. I, Who knows? Again, I'm not trying to 
yuck anyone's yum. I'm just saying that there are people who were like, yeah, I was not a psychic and I was doing this. And that l- brings me to Miss Cleo. Oh, Miss Cleo. Who was a very interesting woman. So, Miss Cleo never actually existed. She's kind of like Aunt Jemima in that she's based, like, she's a character played by a woman and there's sort of a weird racial overtones involved. Yes. Uh, Miss Cleo was born Yure Del Harris, Y-O-U-R-E. She was born in Los Angeles to a Caribbean parents it didn't say where in the caribbean uh, i couldn't find that out and she worked as a playwright a producer and an actress in the 90s in seattle and she had moderate local success but her last work in 1997 resulted in her leaving town as quickly as possible and possibly bilking workers for pay owed oh no and then she in 1998 started work for the psychic readers network under the name Cleo. She did commercials as her Miss Cleo character, claiming she was from Trelawney, Jamaica. And she had a thick Jamaican accent, and the commercials gave you the impression that she would speak to you. She specifically would speak to you and try to, like, solve your problems. And... She, you, it, you know, there were things about like her crystal ball, and then there were tarot cards that had her likeness on them that you could purchase, and so there was like a lot of imagery that is very surface level psychic, and I'm, I'm making air quotes. <laughs> it was very much sort of a costume and a character, and she's she's an actress, so you know it was a good fit for her. Unfortunately, the Psychic Readers Network. And she was not an owner. She was an employee. She was an actress for their commercials, by and large. The Psychic Readers Network got into massive amounts of trouble for deceptive and manipulative advertising. Like, they'd give callers the impression they'd talk to Miss Cleo, and instead they'd get a a network associate, just about anyone who worked for Psychic Readers Network. And I read a... It wasn't a slate. It was a Refinery29 article about someone who worked for the Psychic Readers Network. So specifically for the Miss Cleo. And they only made it working there for about three weeks because they felt like it was kind of unethical. Uh, because a lot of people call about things like financial advice. And a lot of times they, the person that wrote the article would, would say she would get calls from people who were under the impression that Miss Cleo needed to speak to them directly. Like they had been sent a message, an email, saying that Miss Cleo needed to talk to them, so they needed to call, and then they just get routed to whoever. And then the whoever was supposed to say Miss Cleo's not currently available, but I can help you. That's so sad. Like did they send like emails and stuff? Yeah. Interesting. Yep, and uh they also, they promoted some calls as free and then charged people for them. And I oh. think that's, I think that's what really bit them in the butt. So in 1998, they declared bankruptcy. In 2001 to 2002, the FCC, the FTC, and multiple states got involved in legal action with regards to the network owners. And the network owners had to erase half of the debt they were owed. They were owed a billion dollars in debt from people who had called in. 
but had not yet paid because of you know fraudulent charges or components of their charges being fraudulent so these people made a ton of money and then they were required to pay a five million dollar fine and a lot of these lawsuits when i was reading through sort of the history of the psychic readers network and miss cleo a lot of these lawsuits were attributed to miss cleo because she was the face of the company but it was a character that was a property of the psychic readers network and uh Yura Harris did not own, she wasn't, she wasn't named in any lawsuits. She had to testify in some of them, specifically to state she didn't own any of this and she was just acting in commercials. But she got a lot of grief uh, from the press and probably from people as all of this sort of fell to pieces over the course of like two to three years. It was not over a long amount of time. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I said that uh, Psychic Greeters Network declared bankruptcy. They did not. I'm mixing them up with the Psychic Friends Network. (laughs) They never never declared bankruptcy. I apologize. That was incorrect. So the Psychic Greeters was the one that Miss Cleo was part of, and she uh, was just an actor, but they are the ones that got sued for billions of dollars, right? Yes. Okay. And it looks like they're kind of still around. I just Googled them. I did not click on their website because it just felt a little, I was a little worried. They'd spammy? Be like, yeah, it felt spammy. But they're kind of still around, at least in a web portal. And unfortunately, uh, Miss Harris acted in small roles on and off until 2016 when she passed away at the age of only 53 from colon cancer. Oh. Yeah, it's a real shame. I feel badly for her. I, I bet... I I think she caught a lot more grief for being just an actress who played a character that was charismatic than was deserved or correct. That's two psychic networks. And as I said before, there are people who had their own, just like a single individual had their own psychic network or they were running kind of like the psychic readers network or the psychic friends network where there'd be like a beautiful woman as the face of the network because I found a reader's digest article about what's it like to be a psychic on a hotline. And then I found a, a weekly world news article and both of them <laughs> were pretty obviously just sort of long form advertisements. Yeah. Uh, but it was interesting because it was sort of this very ethereal looking woman with big poofy hair, uh, young. And it makes me wonder who you actually spoke to when you called them. So, and how long that even lasted. Where are they now? The Psychic Friends Network had a resurgence in 2012. Uh, and then a web portal redevelop- or developed in 2014 with voice over IP and video chat. And I think it's still around. It was renamed the Peer-to-Peer Network in 2014. And so they rebranded somewhat after bankruptcy. This is the Dionne Warwick Psychic Friends Network. Not the Miss Cleo <laughs> Psychic Readers Network. It's so confusing. It is. And I think because of the accessibility of people now and their time and how many different alerts, kind of like what you're talking about with your smartwatch, we can get. If you get people to give you permission to ping you, that can work very much in the favor of some of these larger networks. But it's also sort of on the other side, social media and crowdsourcing and crowdfunding have allowed individuals to sort of set up shop and make money digitally They in, between psychics and tarot readers and 
people who are channeling messages and stuff between Patreon, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, Snapchat, websites, emails, blah, blah. Yeah. Facebook, I guess. An individual person can reach way more people now without having to have the infrastructure of a 1-900 number. And it's also easier to get access to, like, having social media. The accounts are ostensibly free. And you sort of get all that connectivity for one person. So you don't have to be a Mark Edwards sitting in your house waiting for the phone to ring. (laughs) But you can be. So there are still psychic hotlines. Slate had an article with a writer who apparently tries out a bunch of different jobs and was trying to work for a psychic hotline. They didn't name the hotline. They applied to three different hotlines. And after a long run around, she got hired for one. And then after four days, she got fired for not working enough hours. And she never got paid. No surprise. Uh, The place charged $1.99 a minute. And the writer actually read tarot cards for callers and seemed to put in a good faith effort in terms of like, this is what my cards are telling me. And she noted that most of them just wanted someone to talk to or possibly to decide for them, like I said before. So while the the era of the infomercial has decreased significantly, it's not gone. And psychic hotlines have mostly just changed. Either the people who purport to be psychic or are psychic have control of their own media or they're part of a network that has mutated a bit as time goes on uh, or they're just gone like I would bet the Reader's Digest entry in the Weekly World News entry from the 90s that I read I bet those hotlines don't exist anymore yeah why would you pay to maintain a number when nobody's calling 1-900 numbers anymore so that's where they went. Nice. So this is not psychic related, but I had a friend in the early 2000s that worked for like a sex hotline. It was something like extra money for her on the side to make. And people basically called the number and then just like you were talking about with psychic friends, they got routed to someone. So they'd get routed to her and she had some funny stories. Like I remember the story that, uh, was her favorite for the weirdest thing she had ever had to talk to someone about was granny panties. Like she had to keep talking about, he wanted to talk about women's underwear for elderly women. Okay. Yeah. And it's just a lot of times she said, just like with the psychic network, these people just wanted someone to talk to like some of them may be kind of bizarre, but most of the time it was like really just some human interaction. Yeah. Which I find fascinating. And that makes, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. It's a shame that people can get scammed. Not that your friend was involved in scamming. Cause I, no, uh, sort of adult hotlines are actually handled a little bit differently from psychic hotlines. And while there are ones that are a little scammy, usually they're not, mm-hmm. uh, usually they're pretty straightforward, simple experiences that I know mm-hmm. that because that, they bump. I, the only reason I know that is that research of psychic hotlines and research, research of sort of adult themed hotlines. Those Inter- are sort of intermix. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You you learn about one when you learn about the other. Yeah, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad it was uh, tangentially related. Then. <laughs> oh, definitely. And actually, legally, for a while, you could do specifically a one nine hundred number for sort of adult themes, and that got s- that like legally changed so that it's required to go through a one eight hundred number. 
so that somebody and your your friend probably didn't take credit card information, but somebody probably did earlier in the call chain. Oh yeah. And then transferred them. So it's it's highly likely that credit card information was exchanged and I think that's to help track where the money has been and where it's going and to make it intentional and make it like the fraud is much more sp- like specifically illegal if there is fraud. It makes it harder mm-hmm. to which is a shame that they, it didn't become a requirement for psychic hotlines because a lot of people got defrauded out of money just because of how like the, the psychic readers network operated. So when I was 11, uh, I was a latchkey kid and a friend of mine and I, she was, she came over to play and we were really curious. So we called, I don't remember which one it was. It's probably Miss Cleo's like judging from the time frame, if I was 11, it was early nineties. So that was probably psychic friends network. Okay. So anyway, we called and they didn't require a credit card or anything. So we, we called and I don't even remember what the lady said, but later when my parents found out, my mom called and complained and basically they never had to pay the charge. I only talked to this woman for like maybe three minutes cause I was a little kid and I just hung up on her cause I knew it was something I wasn't supposed to do. But yeah, right. it was interesting. They didn't even check. Like they, I was obviously an 11 year old <laughs> and my friend was on the other phone and we were giggling. So it wasn't like, <laughs> yeah, it's two children chuckling into the ear of a psychic. Right. <laughs> who's just like probably trying to iron while waiting for it to be time for her to go pick up her kid or 11 year old. From I school know. Or whatever. See, I think about that, like this lady that was talking about these two giggly 11-year-olds and what she was thinking at the time as you're talking about this. It's just funny. Just imagine a lady ironing. Yes, honey. (laughs) (laughs) That's fun. I just just, um, think about the vaporwave. Like a lot of vaporwave soundtracks for some reason have like Dionne Warwick in them saying stuff. Because it was so, like, ubiquitous, those commercials late at night that you can just find, like, little bits of them. That's really interesting. I might have to go listen to some Vaporwave. Yeah, you can hear, like, Dionne Warwick's voice saying, at the mall, in one of them. (laughs) That's great. Because they used to do, like, mall visits, right? I'm sure they did all kinds of stuff. (laughs) I'm sure they grifted as much as they could possibly grift. And I'm not trying to claim that Dionne Warwick is a grifter. I think she's probably a lot like Miss Cleo in that she's was hired to be an actress in a commercial. And honestly, I am not going to say that actors are responsible for the actions of the people who uh, do things in their commercials. Or, you know, the people who are ordering the commercials and then running their business. Unless it's the same people. Uh <laughs> I think I'm just I'm I think I'm just salty about how Miss Cleo was treated. <laughs> Cuz she seems yeah. like she seems like she was a pretty okay lady and was just trying to get an acting gig and did a good job and then people are people are I writing need to articles talk to about Ms. her. Cleo and it's such a stereotype. Like it was totally playing into the stereotype of the the wise 
Caribbean Islander lady who's going to tell you about your future because she's into the magics, the island magics. Like, it totally played into that stereotype. So just, I think that's there's that piece of it as well. Oh, for sure. And I'm just glad that they gave her the name Miss Cleo and not something more horrific. So Yeah, awful. <laughs> she was playing a part, getting her cash. It would be like... um uh, you know Mark Ruffalo, the actor that plays yes. the Hulk. It would yes. be like holding Mark Ruffalo responsible for who's the parent company for Stridex. He was in a Stridex ad, or maybe Noxima, one or the other. Uh, Procter Gamble. Yeah, so it would be like holding Mark Ruffalo responsible for Procter and Gamble's behavior, <laughs> which is just absurd. Like you say it that way, and you're like, "That's ridiculous," but that's what was done to Miss Cleo, and probably to a lesser extent to Dionne Warwick. Mm-hmm. So be nice to commercial actors. They're just actors. They're just hustling every day like you and me. <laughs> so that's my soapbox about where uh, psychic hotlines went. I loved it. I still think about it every once in a while. Well, only because I hear Dion Warwick's voice in my head saying, at the mall. <laughs> <laughs> and you can take your cute little appendages or whatever, your toes, your fingers, your flippers, your your paws, or if you happen to be an alien, whatever it is you use, and uh, type our website in, whereitisapodcast.com. We have a Patreon up there, and you can support us and let us get awesome new equipment or buy us a coffee. It's on whereitisapodcast.com. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. I have a Pinterest up where you can look at the stuff that I pin when I'm bored. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye.